0: what is up piss town pals this is district sentinel radio live broadcasting out of the may Rip middle east report studio in washington dc piss town usa i am sam Sachs.
1: i'm sam knight what do we got coming up on the show oh that's me reading that coming up the smears of Ilhan Omar show just how scared the Israel cheerleaders are. So, too, does a new group with ties to APAC. Noah Colwin, Jewish Currents staff writer, explains. Yes, he does. That's our
0: interview for uh, this evening. We've also got coming up on the show, new poll numbers show the obvious. Bernie Sanders is the frontrunner in the Democratic primary so far. And his campaign is already putting to rest 2016 talking points on what his perceived weaknesses are. Fortunately, there's also good news for Joe Biden.
1: That's never good news uh, for everyone
0: else. We've got an APT update coming up as well later in the show. And of course, the garbage can. Hate to say it, but AOC may have tweeted her way into the trash alongside House Democrats. But There is, of course, still time to vote right now, patreon.com slash district sentinel. If you subscribe, five bucks a month, you get access to bonus content. You get your own haiku. We're going to read some poetry later in the show. And you also get to vote in the dang garbage can. Have your say. We've got a lot of good candidates uh, this week. But uh, I guess we'll start off we also going to read some shitty emails later on in the show as well. Right, Sam?
1: Yeah, that's right. We got we got shitty emails. It's another week, so we got some shitty emails. Yeah,
0: yeah. But uh, let's start off with uh, things on the Hill tonight, uh, where Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen testified in defense of the Trump administration's border policy. This is not the easiest job in the world, but you should not feel bad for her at all since she's the one implementing it. Here's the chairman of the uh, House Homeland Security Committee, Congressman Benny Thompson, questioning Nielsen
2: uh, right off the bat here. For the record, Madam Secretary, are we still using cages for children?
3: Uh, sir, we don't use cages for children. In the border facilities that you've been to, uh, they were not made uh, to detain children. As the children are processed through, they are in subparts of those facilities. At-
2: Madam, Madam,
3: I, I don't, Secretary. I don't, yes, I'm uh, being as clear as I can, sir. Respectfully, right, I'm trying to answer just your question.
2: Yes questions. or no, are we still putting children in cages? Uh,
3: to my knowledge, CBP never purposely put a child in a cage if they uh, mean uh, it like this.
2: Purposely or whatever, uh, are we putting children in cages as of today?
3: Children are processed at the border facility stations that you've been at, some of them And I've areas. seen the
2: cages. I just want you to admit that the cages exist Sir, they're not cages. What are they? They're
3: areas of the border facility that are carved out for the safety and protection of those who remain there while they're being processed. If we have two gangs, we separate them into separate areas no, of no, the. No. Ma- father Sec- and daughter Madam secretary. We separate that from another son.
2: We, we're not going to go through the semantics. Now I saw the cyclone fences. That were made as cages. And you did, too. All you have to do is admit it.
0: Notice how she said, look, if there's two gangs, we separate them. If there is a mother and daughter, and we separate them from the son. (laughs) Same thing. Same thing there, obviously. Same
1: uh, same stuff. Yeah, she just tried to... uh Work that in there, hoping no one would notice. I mean, maybe she didn't really <clears throat> hope no one would notice. She was just trying to avoid answering the question directly about whether or not we fucking put children in cages.
0: Yeah, it gets worse. Here's uh, Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman.
3: What is a um, chain-link fence enclosed into a, um, a chamber on a concrete uh, floor represent to you, is that a cage? It's a detention space, ma'am, that you know has existed for decades. Does it case. differ from the cages you put your dogs in when you let them stay outside? Is it, a, is it different? It, it, yes. In what sense? Uh, it's larger.
0: <laughs> yes, it's, it's larger. This was Congresswoman Nanette Berrigan
3: Are you familiar with the asylum laws, uh, Madam Secretary? Yes. Where in the asylum law does it say that when you present yourself at a port of entry, and by the way, when you're on U.S. soil, that you could be sent by an agent to another port of entry? Is it anywhere in the asylum law? What we're trying to do is process... It's not in there. I know you, I know just, it's a yes or no, it's not in there. Because what you all are doing is not within the confines of the law. You talk about a list. Under what authority is there in U.S. law that a list could be started to have people wait in Mexico? Do you have that authority? Yes, ma'am. What is, what is under that what authority? The authority is to do all that we can to protect the migrants coming here. It says Okay, okay so well, that is not what the, that's not what the <laughs> asylum law says.
1: <laughs> that is not an authority. That's not a law. That's uh, you just making up a string of words. That, that sound good.
0: <laughs> here is Congressman Al Green really getting to the point here.
2: Madam Secretary, here is the problem. We have surpassed our color quota. There are those who believe that we already have too many people of color in this country. And these one of whom happens to be the president of the United States of America, would institute policies that will prevent people of color from coming to this country. White babies would not be treated the way these babies of color are being treated, Madam Secretary. This is about color. We've opened our doors. You're tired, you're poor huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Except we now have our quota of people of color. I'll yield back the balance of my time.
0: Now there were Republicans at this hearing as well who used their questioning to defend uh, the administration's racist, fascist border policy. And uh, it was as dumb as you'd imagine. Here was Pirate... Dan Crenshaw, folks.
4: And then we get to the question of whether walls work. And this has been a really fun conversation over the last couple of months. Do walls work? Madam Secretary, would you agree that there's three parts to security? Personnel, technology, and barriers. Absolutely. Can you just take one of those away? No, sir. When I was down to McAllen and Brownsville, what we see is Brownsville is about 35 miles worth of of barriers. And as a result, only 6% of the crossings in that sector take place because walls work. Would you agree with that?
3: Walls work, yes, sir.
0: Walls work, yes, sir. (laughs) SNL liberals made this guy famous, and he thinks he's going to be president one day. You can tell by the way he, he conducts himself. But uh, the only thing separating him from being most well-known as some crank Facebook, racist Facebook page administrator is an election he won because that's what he was before this.
1: Yeah, he was also uh, railing against asylum law and people taking advantage of it. And what he means by that is people using asylum law the way it was meant to be using, the way it was meant to be used. Yeah. And that's a, that's a common Republican talking point, which speaks to Al Green's point about it's all about white nationalists trying to uh, say the color quota has been filled. Uh, Dan Crenshaw, you got a squash ball in your eye, bud. <laughs> you might want to take that out.
0: Speaking of SNL liberals, MSNBC pundits have to update their talking points turns out Bernie Sanders is polling extremely well among black voters in the Democratic Party. A new morning consult poll shows Bernie Sanders leading the announced field among all voters, including leading the field among black voters. He's also leading the field among folks who make fewer than $50,000 a year. That's where he's really strong. He's beating Kamala Harris 28% to 14% among black voters, despite a nagging narrative, mostly from liberal media, that Sanders has a problem in that demographic. Now the poll does show Joe Biden, who hasn't announced yet, beating Sanders among Democrats polled. It's 31 to 27. That was Harper in the background shaking off there. Uh, Biden's beating Sanders 31 to 27 among Democrats. He's also beating Sanders among Black Democrats 32 to 28 percent. Just jump in, Joe. We'll 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 knock those poll numbers down eventually once he gets in the race. Intern Nate has arrived. It's going to start making his dinner. He's doing the suck it hand sign <laughs> off camera. Weird piece of data from this morning consult poll. Among those who support Sanders, their second choice is Joe Biden and vice versa. With Biden, their second choice is Sanders. Explain that one since they're on complete opposite sides of the spectrum politically within the primary. I guess it is it has something to do with the importance of authenticity. I think whether or not you think Joe, is Joe Biden actually authentic? He's really good at getting that across and connecting with voters in that way. And at this point, nobody's paying really much attention to what his policies might be. I don't know. How do you explain it? Other than also maybe people being really uncomfortable with voting for uh, women and people of color too. Maybe
1: there's also- Even within the Democratic Party the the familiar the familiarity of Joe Biden. Yeah. And that too. um both he and Sanders have have high name recognition. It could very well be internalized uh misogyny and racism. Although uh it could also be there is an authenticity to Biden in that he certainly uh does not attempt to be the super woke guy that Hillary Clinton uh, tried to play off as some sort of I'm I'm super progressive I'm super woke, and no one was buying that. Yeah, I think that <clears throat> probably put off uh, voters on the on the margins of uh, their political of political involvement because it just did not ring true. That's the, if that's what Hillary Clinton is selling to you, then. Everything else she's selling to you is also bullshit, and it's really easy to sniff that out.
0: Yeah, my guess is uh, as the primary goes on, that number with Warren and Biden will flip. Hopefully. Yeah,
1: we'll see. A report today in The Nation detailed how ICE is spying on protesters in New York City. Documents obtained by the magazine through FOIA show that ICE officials have been keeping tabs on, quote, anti-Trump protests. That included one rally organized against fascists, when the uh, white nationalist group Identity Europa unfurled a, a banner at a park in Manhattan. I know it's called Identity Europa. They just do that really uh, annoying thing where they use the uh, V as a U because they want to <laughs> pretend like there's some classics. Um, you know that they, they are the carrying the mantle of all the the classical European bullshit. And I think it's important to mock them and how fucking stupid they are. And they're taking their their preening stupidity to such a new height that they're willing to call their group identity Evropa. <laughs> it's not Europa. It's Evropa. Anyway, they're a bunch of fascists, and they unfurled a banner at a park in Manhattan. It read, uh, "Quote: Stop the invasion and immigration." And uh, they were among the other fascist groups at the uh, murderous Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And so people in New York came out to protest these scum, including a Democratic congressman, Adriano me. So because Espeyat was there, he could react to this news of the surveillance. And he told the nation, quote, I would like to find out why our event was on that list and uh whether it was surveilled or infiltrated and why the racist anti-Semitic group was not on the list. So again, ICE spying on peaceful protesters in New York City. That that this is not at all uh what the agency was created to do. And um yeah, they're doing it basically to keep tabs of protesters uh who are demonstrating against fascists, so perfectly normal thing there, and it gets more normal. Another story published by Splinter uh, showed that leaked chat logs from identity Europa show that the group is now trying to infiltrate the Republican party and uh, the military. <laughs> one member said quote it shouldn't it, be too hard no one exactly and <laughs> I think that's playing into their th- uh, their, their line of thinking because one member said quote uh, the GOP is essentially the white man's party at this point. It gets wider every election cycle. So it makes far more sense for us to subvert it than to create our own party. Present as a Trump supporter nationalist. No need to broadcast your radical views. You'll just fit right in. <laughs> On joining the military or wanting to join, one member uh, said, quote, if you're in the military or join up, keep IE close to the chest. Meaning they don't want to. Um, they want to be uh, covert about it. They don't want to get caught. Uh, evidently, you can still get in trouble for this thing. <laughs> Although, uh, the military did lower their recruitment standards in 2006 amid the Iraq War meat grind, uh, and they basically let in white nationalists and, and white supremacists because uh, because of war, because they needed the the, the meat grind. And so it's surprising that they have to keep their cards close to the chest at all. Anyway, according to these chat logs, about 12 of these neo-Nazi dweebs are either enlisted or want to sign up. Uh, But again, this is only a sliver of, you know, I'm sure what's going on. These were just chat logs obtained by Splinter. The chat room says they
0: use the V because they hate you. (laughs) That's good. Thank you, Christopher. (laughs) House Democrats are trying to move... Uh, An anti-Semitism resolution to embarrass Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Everybody knows about this by now. Uh, But it got me thinking about how goddamn awful the Democratic agenda has been so far during this session of Congress, which I know is young, but still. So I went, I looked it up. Uh, We've got 132 pieces of legislation moved by the House Democratic majority. A lot of that House business stuff related to setting up committees and leadership. But if you remove all that stuff and remove consideration of appropriations bills, which are mandatory each year, you get 72 bills that have passed out of the House, Um, includes resolutions. In fact, there's uh, three joint resolutions, 69 bills. Uh, passed by the House so far. So I think that's a good starting point to figure out what the Pelosi agenda, what the House Democratic agenda looks like, right? Wait, we've got, uh, we've got a chance to see what members have had their bills considered, what those bills have been, which ones were contentious. I mean, it's one thing to move a bill to rename a post office and it be a unanimous voice vote that really doesn't speak to the Democratic agenda. So, Of those 72 bills and joint resolutions, the vast, vast majority, almost all of them, have been voice vote, unanimous passage, or they had fewer than 20 votes in opposition. So uh, pretty non-controversial bills, uh, bills that both parties agree on, which nowadays is generally awful shit. Um, Of those 72 bills, 67 fall under that category. They were passed by voice vote or with fewer than 400 lawmakers, uh... Uh, More than 400 lawmakers voting in support. In fact, 21 bills were introduced by Republicans so far that have been passed by the Democratic majority. Great hits like the Expanding Contracting Opportunities for Small Businesses Act of 2019, the Small Business Advocacy Improvements Act of 2019, and the Clean Up the Code Act of 2019. (laughs) It's been a good session for small business tyrants here. Help
1: help the small business owners sweep their... uh their dead employees under the rug act. <laughs> I, I don't know. Here's some uh, stuff put Help forward. Help them sweep dead animals under the rug. <laughs> Help so, them dispose of dead animals. You done? It, <laughs> yeah, I'm done. Stuff put forward by liberals. We have uh, the All American
0: Flag Act. Yeah. Which actually isn't quite as bad as it sounds. It's just ensuring that uh, flag procurements are done through American made businesses uh businesses that source american-made goods um but priorities still right we also have the hack your state department act <laughs> which uh, created a bug bounty program at the state department that was a ted Lu joint funny thing about that ted Lu legislation it passed with only three non no votes but 53 members didn't even bother to show up they just uh mm. they don't give a shit about what ted Lou's up to Similar to all of us when we, see, when we see him
1: tweet, when everyone sees him tweet. Uh, can we get a bill to mandate that you have to burn the American flag in America? <laughs> I feel like we Americans uh, should have to take responsibility for all the misery that thing has caused. And I guess we can create some jobs in the good old USMA yeah. while we do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Keep the demand for flags going here. Um, never go out of business.
1: <laughs> Uh, there's also legislation, make more flags just to burn them.
0: There's also bipartisan legislation to like protect NATO, to declare that the Syrian central bank is money laundering, (laughs) um, the good stuff.
1: Um, so that leaves the work for the American people
0: that leaves only five bills, just five out of the 132 pieces of legislation that can speak to the democratic, uh, agenda in the house that had contentious party line votes. Um, Two of those bills enhanced background checks, uh, mostly party line votes. One bill increased federal workforce pay by 2.6%, which was good, but also uh, a necessary thing. It's kind of like maintenance to keep up with inflation. Uh, but remo- Republicans, they're still monsters and voted against that. Uh, there was a resolution rejecting the president's declaration of a national emergency at the border, which was a mostly party line vote. And there was Rokana's war powers resolution against Yemen, which was just good as hell. But that is it. That's all we have to show for the democratic agenda so far. And other than that increase for federal workers, nothing uh, economic or class focused. And I get that it takes time to craft legislation and it's the appropriate thing to hold hearings first and do the research and everything, but obviously, y- you know, you're not just going to move the green new deal in the first month, but still there has been legislation that's been written. Ideas have been researched. What about raising the federal minimum wage to $15 on day one? And we know this legislation is not going to move in the Senate. House Republicans still passed a slew of bullshit when they had the majority to show people what their agenda is. And turns out it's completely radical and people didn't really like it. But show them something here. Show Democrats need to show people what their agenda is. What about EFCA? I feel, like that's, I feel like I'm an old person when I say EFCA now. It's so long <laughs> ago, and nobody talks about it anymore.
1: Yeah. The, but uh, at least the minimum wage stuff. That could have been done on day one. Yeah. Day one. Everyone was hoping that EFCA would be passed uh, last time Pelosi was speaker, and there were a majority of co-sponsors in the House, and it didn't even come up for a vote. It's my favorite uh, Pelosi anecdote. I think I've said it a million times. Yeah. Uh how about we get a new green deal program where we just uh p- produce energy by burning the American flag? <laughs> I support this, but
0: honestly, folks, with the exception of HR one, whenever the hell that's going to get passed, which is a pretty good piece of legislation. Yeah, uh, not sure the rest of this agenda looks hopeful. Pelosi's already dismissed the Green New Deal as a dream. Uh, her policy guy has already assured health insurance uh, lobbyists that single payer ain't going to happen. Um, this is about what I expected with the uh, the Pelosi agenda three months in. Shall we check the inbox? Let's check the inbox here, where we uh, read emails
1: from ship merchants in D.C. Ship merchants, the uh, PR goons who pitch us awful things that uh, we probably shouldn't publicize, but we want to stress that we do it because it's bad. So, subject, sacrificing freedom to vaccination from uh, Dr. Jane Orient. Yes, this is another Dr. Jane Orient joint. Another- <laughs> uh,
0: we've uh, talked about her... Uh, Before on the show, I hope this picture haunts you in your dreams. Now, that's what I call an
1: email from Dr. Jane Orient, volume two. (laughs) So here, I guess I'm not, it's a long rambling email. Um, I think this this excerpt uh, sums it up pretty well. Deciding what is best for individual patients is difficult, fraught with danger and full of uncertainties. Doctors may advise or patients may choose a course that is harmful, but if government authorities imbued with a sense of infallibility impose their will on everyone, the consequences of a bad choice affect millions. Um, No, I think the consequences of bad choices affect millions if people don't get vaccinated. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it's it's the opposite.
1: It's the opposite. Trading freedom and free speech for supposed security ultimately leads to a loss of both. And if government can dictate what you must inject into your own children, what limits can be placed on its power? This is clearly in response, and we talked about this on the show, on the
0: news dump yesterday over on SoundCloud. Uh, Rand Paul just chiming in in uh, in a Senate committee yesterday about how uh, vaccinations don't work and you shouldn't sacrifice liberty to uh, be forced to take something that's not effective, just jumping in with some uh, vaxer bullshit. He even was shouted down by a fellow Republican uh, on this. But here we go. Now we're getting the emails to everybody in D.C. This is the <laughs> sort Dr. of Jane uh, Dr. Jane Orient. Jane Orient has been
1: activated. <laughs> this this is the sort of um, reasoning that you uh, kind of hear when you hear those random libertarians argue against like mandating indoor plumbing like building codes yeah i don't know uh dr jane orient should do some experiments on herself uh, because i think she has uh, she's showing that libertarianism is a contagious brain disease Uh, another email here is what the center for education reform is saying about recent teacher strikes quote pay and class size are smoke screens for attacks Mm. The recent spate of teachers' union strikes against their students that began in Los Angeles were ostensibly about paying class size. It has become clear that the real goal of the strikes is to eliminate competition for the unions and choice for students and parents. Go to hell. This is is basically admitting charter schools are union-busting. That's all they're good for. Like... Anyway, good luck in 2020 to ex-Betsy DeVos ally Cory Booker. Surely he will do well in the current uh, political climate of the Democratic primary. Surely. All right. Should we go on to the interview? Let's do it. An obvious undercurrent to the Ilhan Omar smear campaign is that Americans are increasingly recognizing the humanity of Palestinians. and And Israel cheerleaders are scared shitless. Well, now they've devised a new plan. A group with ties to APAC is planning to tap into whatever remains of grassroots support for Israel. Noah Colwyn, a Jewish Currents staff writer, explains what he discovered in a story co-published by Jewish Currents and the Huffington Post. So outline this document you got. Uh, what sort of fundraising strategy does it outline? And uh, how is it connected to APAC?
4: So this document outlines the creation of a new group called Pro-Israel America. And the idea is that Pro-Israel America, which is a 527 designated political organization, will create a website and basically create a portal through which supporters of Israel who want to give money to pro-Israel candidates can do that. And it's a strategy that is akin to a lot of what is um, used in more progressive circles to get small dollar donations in the hands of politicians. Um, The idea of pro-Israel America and what sets it apart in its connection to AIPAC is that it will be launched on stage at the AIPAC policy conference, according to the document that I obtained and its leadership is just stacked with former APAC people. Its executive director was for over a decade the head of uh, outreach at APAC, and one of its board members used to be APAC's head of national affairs. And this is a tremendous shift for a group like APAC, whose traditional fundraising strategy and lobbying strategy has largely drawn from uh, big donors, What people, what the, what's called in this document, quote, the grass tops. And so this is an attempt to try and get at whatever they believe to be, you know, grassroots money that would come from pro-Israel supporters.
1: This seems to be, whether or not it's intended to be, it seems to be an admission that they're losing.
4: Oh, totally. This is, it's 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 a complete admission that the strategy that they've had for the last couple decades, which is, again, to focus on these sort of big donors, these kinds of whales, um, they don't want to do that anymore, or at least they can't do it exclusively anymore. They feel that they can't, and they feel that they have to start competing with people who are doing small-dollar donations. And so when you look at you know, critics of APAC in Congress, like Ilhan Omar or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they, you know, they're terrified. And they think that they need to start getting at the same kinds of donors who are supporting politicians like that—the people it, who are, you know, giving twenty-seven dollars or something.
1: It seems like they're getting the cart before the horse, though, because the uh, the it there were at one point more small-dollar uh, pro-Israel donors. It seems, and after what we've seen over the past few years, and how uh, the Israeli government uh you know, rained war on Palestinians in twenty fourteen, how Benjamin Netanyahu treated President Obama and everything else that is in the American Jewish community's face is uh seems to indicate that if anything, this group might just end up getting money from middle-class evangelical Christians.
0: Yeah, this this seems like it, it would fail, and this new method of small-dollar fundraising works really well for candidates that are popular with young people and people who can't give much but still drive a lot of energy. But is that really APAC's constituency anymore?
4: Well, I mean, so that's a really good point, and it's one that Lara Friedman, the director of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, whom I quote at the end of the piece, it's one that she raised, which is just that this seems like it's misreading the moment and that it's a kind of response that doesn't really take into account that the fundamental issues about why people don't support groups like APAC anymore are related to questions of policy. And it's not about money. It's, it's, a quest- it's the fact that more and more people reject the kinds of hardline Israel politics, particularly within the Democratic Party, you see this rejection, that, you, that they're now in a world in which that's because they don't have that reflexive support they need to find a new way to try and recreate it, and this is one of the ways in which they think that they're going to do that. There's another group that's already launched called the Democratic Majority for Israel, which is also stacked with a lot of former and current um, APAC officials or um, like supporters and, and figures, um, people who raise money for APAC, um, and these groups are designed to you know, direct money to candidates who support Israel policy, uh, to support, um, you know, the Israeli government and who, uh, and they also want these groups want to get involved in democratic primaries ostensibly, because that's, you know, where this money would probably be effective. Um, I think that there's something really interesting happening here though in that like even if this strategy is kind of a misfire and that it may not work in the way that they want to, I think it's it represents more than anything, it's it it shows that these groups are on their it shows that they're they're not on safe ground anymore they don't feel as comfortable and that they have to try doing things like this because apac is so careful about never saying that we raise money for groups they're 501c3 we don't directly donate to everything the fact that they would launch a group that is in the business of doing direct campaign donations at their flagship policy conference later this month it suggests a c-chain
0: yeah i remember when uh ilhan omar did her all about the benjamin's tweet and everybody responded by saying, "Do you really think APAC gives money to candidates?" Completely glossing over the fact of how they leverage their members uh, to give lots of money to candidates. And now, just a month later, APAC's getting the business of at least through these groups giving money directly to candidates. So, I mean, they they've, i guess they've—they've uh, they've, uh, disarmed the people who were trying to scold Elon over something. I don't know, but it certainly suggests they're scared. <laughs>
4: Absolutely. I also think that another part of this that's really interesting is the fact that they're willing to, like, center this kind of thing. I think that there's something that they're like, they they, they see something about the way progressive movements are working today that they want to emulate. Um, It's not just enough to, like, try and create, you know, some, like, front group that doesn't really have a constituency. They're actually committed to the idea of like, you know, let's see if we can actually, you know, channel this same kind of energy among us, uh, among our supporters. And, you know, I don't think it'll work in the way that they think it will, particularly if the goal is to influence, you know, intra-democratic politics. But it's very interesting that they even feel like this is something that they need to try and do, Um I, I, I'm str- I strongly doubt that it'll work in the way that they think it will, just because of, you know, w- what you pointed to earlier, which is the fact that, you know, the base of support that they're trying to draw from is actually on the right. And it's these middle class evangelicals who might give this kind of money and that it actually really isn't about, you know, like that there isn't this like, you know, wave of unmet progressive energy that they can suddenly channel. But the desperation is totally you can smell it. It's it's totally present in this
1: obviously the uh thing that one expects them to do with the money is to try to unseat Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar uh maybe not in that order <laughs> uh although who knows but it does seem like this money maybe if if they can raise e- even um you know an unimpressive but significant amount it could have Maybe some kind of impact in the uh, Democratic presidential primary thinking where you have a a candidate like Kamala Harris, who tries to be paint herself as a as a progressive. We all know she's a cop, but (laughs) she tries to paint herself (laughs) as a progressive on the one hand uh, and indicative of how this fails. She also constantly gushes about Israel. So, do you, basically, my question is: Do you think this could maybe ha, is there any indication this could uh, be focused on presidential politics rather than uh, maybe congressional politics?
4: There's nothing in the document that says that talks about presidential politics, like or I mean, the Congress is really their focus, and that's frankly where APAC has concentrated, and APAC's like allies have concentrated, you know, their their power for a long time. Um, so my guess, my impression is that there's nothing in this document that suggests that they're changing their focus there i think though that when it comes to the presidential primary in groups like apacs i think groups like apac i think that they you know like they're going to have a wait and see approach and you know the right has traditionally mobilized far better around trying to create national targets out of quote unquote anti israel politicians um uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, this is the first time I think that we've had a Democratic primary in which pro-Israel activists have felt really the need, like they felt the fire on their, their ass to really get involved. Bernie did not, you know, for, for all the ways in which his platform has evolved since 2016, you know, Bernie was not talking about Israel-Palestine in a way that um, I think, you know, scared big Democratic donors like Chaim Saban, who were already behind Hillary anyway. Um, I think that they're like, I think that now that may have changed. And over the next year, you know, we'll see if these groups feel compelled to intervene um, earlier on in ways that they definitely didn't in the 2016 primary. I wouldn't be surprised if they do. But it's also when you think about where these groups have largely been able to channel their influence. Congress has been a really effective place for them to go, and they haven't really needed to go to the uh, presidential—to go through, um, like, go wade into the presidential uh, races. You know, you can look at it this way. Um, When Obama was trying to, you know, through—and John Kerry were trying to get peace talks off the ground in 2013 between the Israelis and and the Palestinians— One of the big problems that they had was that they actually did not have the political will in Congress to back up anything that would have been, you know, would have represented meaningful force to exert on the Israeli government. Like, you couldn't have gotten Obama to start threatening to condition aid to Israel on ending the occupation. That wasn't going to happen because there wasn't the base of support in Congress for it. Maybe he could have done something that could have ginned, uh, uh, ginned up support for it, like he was able to with the Iran deal. But Congress really is where a lot of the influence has been historically. And by continuing to maintain that influence in Congress, even if you're able to elect a progressive in the next cycle, you're still going to be able to countermand whatever the agenda is of the, of the executive office, so long as you're able to maintain that hold in Congress.
0: There's been some reporting today that the resolution that House Democrats are trying to move to condemn anti-Semitism and basically condemn Ilhan Omar uh, might indeed be delayed that there's leftward pressure to to scrap it or at least broaden it to include things like Islamophobia and hate of all sorts. Um, But putting that aside, I think it's been pretty clear that the anti-Semitic smear campaign against Ilhan Omar for criticizing Israel has been pretty effective. Uh, she, it's it's resulted in her party uh, throwing her under the bus and trying to, I mean, they passed an amendment in February that was pretty much to the, the same nature of this resolution that they're trying to pass uh, now. I'm curious if APAC has taken note of how effective this uh, smear campaign has been and that that might be part of their motivation to get in, to these local races, because it explicitly says in the document that they're targeting races where one candidate uh, supports Israel more than the other candidate, and maybe that, that spending can go towards smearing the other candidate as an anti-Semite. I mean, do, do, you, do you see more of these disingenuous charges uh, coming up now that they're going to be getting more involved in these local races?
4: Well, I think it's interesting because I think that this is actually going to be a point of tension within APAC, and we're going to have to see which way they kind of split on it. Because if you look at the right wing right now, if you you look at CPAC and and the rhetoric that was at CPAC this past week, the the right wing – is going to seize on anti-Semitism of the left as sort of a way, you know, you could, it's, it's, you could view it as it's just more fuel for lib owning, or you could think of it as this is like the tack that they are going to take about, you know, the, left's, the left actually has, you know, like real problems of its own. And if you care about Israel, then you're going to need to go with us. And I think that that kind of line of attack, it's it's traditionally that sort of like line is way too partisan for a group like APAC. APAC's strength has always been that they've almost oxygenated support for Israel within within D.C. They've made it so um, they've made it you know, it's omnipresent. It's everywhere. It's unquestioned. It's just the way things are. And so the idea that like these attacks, which are going to just become more partisan in nature, um, are something that they're willing to, you know, sign on to, even if they're going to do it subtly, that would be a big shift for APAC. And given, as you just described, the efficacy of those attacks of the last couple weeks, I, you know, I would not be surprised if this is, you know, the moment in which we see the Israel lobby start to just more, you know, transparently side with Republicans, which then, you know, the big question then becomes, well, what did the House Democrat, lead, what did the Democratic leadership do? And I think that because of Nancy Pelosi's and Steny Hoyer's and especially Chuck Sumer's longstanding ties in support of the Israel lobby, I think that we might see this kind of, you know, this Democratic Party schism that's already happening. I think you just might ultimately see the Democratic leadership start siding with the Republicans on these kinds of issues as they have with this resolution and that they're just willing to give them ammunition and they're willing to support them because they agree with the Republicans on this issue and that they actually support these kinds of things. So whether or not APAC goes that openly and splits that way remains to be seen, but it would not surprise me if this is the moment that they pick for a more partisan shift.
1: Hmm. Yeah, Very, I, re- I remember when Tru- we talk about it on the show a bunch, when Chuck Schumer uh, went to AIPAC and was basically like, actually, uh, ethnic cleansing in Palestine is good because Palestinians don't believe in the Torah.
4: Yeah, a- I, was, I, was in the, I was in the crowd when that happened. I was in the room. And it was totally fascinating that Chuck Schumer on the stage at AIPAC was the one giving the most right-wing speech out of anybody I heard there, whether you're talking about Mike Pence or Nikki Paley, who were up there as well. It's, it, was totally, it was totally surreal.
1: So any final thoughts on the story of the week? Obviously, the uh, fallout and the uh, smear campaigns and diaper filling over Ilhan Omar.
4: I think that the one main thought I have is just that it's like it's it's there isn't like when it comes to Israel-Palestine, I can't think of an issue in in recent history where the need for the left to come together and rally around Omar um, has ever been more like like the case for that has never like, never been more dire the need for it um, to rally around a politician like this i think that it's like really important to not equivocate in really you know big meaningful ways and to not cede ground that isn't frankly democratic politicians to cede there is a long overdue suffer- conversation about the suffering of palestinians in this country and the reason that that conversation is overdue is because of the work of the Israel lobby and because of yes the frankly dual allegiance that they play that they command um, in order to, uh, to the Israeli into Israeli government policy and you know that may not be a complete way of describing the dynamic but it's not inaccurate and I think that there is like a real need for the left to come together and especially for left Jews to come together and to rally around Omar in this way I think it's of paramount importance
1: Noah Colwyn is a staff writer for Jewish Currents. He just wrote a story about pro-Israel America. It was co-published by Jewish Currents and Huffington Post. You can find him on Twitter at NKULW, NKULW, at Twitter. Noah, thanks so much for coming on.
4: Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Noah. Thank you. Take care.
1: You too. All right, we are
0: back live in Piss Town. Nate has informed me that uh, he cooked salmon. Internate had cooked salmon for dinner tonight, and it's actually leftover salmon from last night. And internate had the audacity, the goddamn audacity, this morning. He, we walk into the newsroom, he's got a bunch of candles lit, and he says, I had to light these candles because it smelled like dog in here, <laughs> trying to blame Harper, who's been hanging out in the newsroom for the last few days, for the poor smell in the house, when it was obvious that the bad smell <laughs> was his freaking fish that he cooked.
1: It stunk up the whole house. Love to stink up the house with fish and then blame it on a dog. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Harper the dog.
1: Just obvious when when you're scapegoating. There's some uh,
0: scapedogging. <laughs> There's some chatter in the chat room about a, a Discord group to play Civ or to watch us play Civ. It would have been a great uh, game to watch. Last week when I beat Sam Knight in our Civ 6 game, I was the Hungarian Empire and I won a science victory while he was out
1: uh, invading the Incan Empire. Which inadvertently helped you. I uh, it did. I very much regret doing that.
0: It did. Uh, but yeah, we'll look into that. We'll look into that Discord stuff. Anything else going on in the chat room?
1: Uh, people are talking about vaccines and dystopian yeah. future, and uh, and uh, vaccines becoming a part of the culture war. All and right. certain towns have epidemics sweeping through and leaving like forty percent of people dead, like the bubonic plague. Kev, uh, Kelly says, "I'm gonna be so mad if some old timey disease is what gets me. <laughs> that, that would be a pretty shitty way to go."
0: Yeah, vaxers got us.
1: <laughs> there also, there's also a lot of talk on the chat about uh, powering things by burning the American flag. Carter says heating my apartment with a big barrel filled with burning American flags in the living room. <laughs> Alex says traveling the country on a train powered by burning flags. More flags in the furnace, I yell. Luke says I want a bumper sticker that says my diesel truck runs on flag. <laughs> I would like to coal roll on a truck uh, powered by burning flags. <laughs> coal rolling on the, on the flag truck. But, but by flag truck, I don't mean I have bumper stickers of the flag on the truck. I mean, I am burning the flag on uh, to to power the truck.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, the last few weeks, we've uh, talked to Tanky Visieto, the creator of the Awful Pundit Tournament, on Twitter. We're down to the Farkakta 4. And uh, we had Tanky call in with an update.
5: Hey, what's up, District Sentinel listeners and viewers? This is Tanky uh calling in with an update on the Awful Pundit Tournament. We are down to the FACACTA floor, and it is uh Ben Shapiro versus Red Sea Stephen Miller and Max Boot versus Tucker Carlson. Um, as we speak, I believe Shapino and uh Carlson are are leading in their respective matchups and on face to uh, collide in the finals. It's um, really looking forward to it. It's going to be in a pretty good couple weeks uh, ahead of us and uh, should transition nicely, uh, you know, towards uh, baseball season, which is, uh, you know, you, what we're going to base it around. That's going to be the offseason. And then uh, at the end of the World Series, we're going to, Startup Pundemonium 2020. So uh, that's the update. Um, was that guys?
0: <laughs> Thanks for the uh, update. Uh, follow Tanky on Twitter at Tanky underscore Vicieto. Voting is underway right now. I personally want to see a Shapino max Boot final, even though Carlson, I guess, is winning. But Max Boot, Cinderella story,
1: I don't want to see it end. He's worked hard to get there and I think <clears throat> I do think he has it in him to, uh, to uncrown Shapino. that music means it's
0: time to read some poetry for our new subscribers on Patreon patreon.com slash district sentinel five bucks a month get you
1: access to bonus content and your own haiku read on the air this is for Kate sorry son too short Says the ride operator Dang says Shapiro Thank you Kate This one goes out to Mark Clank
0: clankity clank Internate in the kitchen Ruining the show And just talking openly During the show (laughs) Asking us questions
1: Thank you Mark This is for Dez New logo for Dim's Donkey kicking another donkey at a bus. That's a good one. That's a good new logo. Fits
0: very well. Thank you, Des. Finally, this is for Hector. Battery Mountain. Used up Duracells. Stacked high. Is it dangerous?
1: Thank you to... Sorry, I lost my place. Hector. Hector.
0: Thank you, Hector. No, really, is it dangerous, though? Because that's what I've been doing with all our used batteries, is just sort of stacking them up into a pile uh, right next to
1: this monitor over here. (laughs) Well, I I guess you should leave it near other electronics. That would make it safer. When I was a kid, there was always a rumor that you could get batteries to melt by attaching a paper clip Hmm. from one end to the other. And I tried it a few times, but it never worked. Never worked. <laughs> Too bad.
0: Uh, thanks again to all the new subscribers on Patreon. That is uh, patreon.com slash district sentinel. All right. We've reached the end of the show. Interns, we need you now more than ever. Bring in the can.
1: Right this way. Bring it in. Bring it in. Bring it in. Bring it in. Thank you. Oh, a lot of, uh, a lot of fish bones Everything. in there from internate. You're not
0: supposed to use the garbage can for your fish bones, Nate.
1: Right there's good. Thank you. It's okay. I think we can use it this week. We're going we're gonna to need all the stench we can get. And uh, it's not coming from the dog. We know that. Garbage candidate number one, House Democrats. This is the second time in a few weeks that House Democrats have caved on racist, reactionary smears of Ilhan Omar. Dweeb[s] like Elliot Engel and Nita Lowey pushed leaders to punish her again, as the most overtly Islamophobic parts of the right call for Omar's committee assignments and worse. Again, this is because Omar d- correctly diagnosed what pro-Israel lobbyists do in the U.S. Raise tons of money demanding fealty to Israel. Democratic leaders have dialed back their plans to rebuke Omar somewhat, but the latest reporting indicates they're still putting forth a resolution condemning, quote, all hate. Omar, however, expressed no hate. This is a charade designed to embarrass her as she, received de- as she receives death threats from Islamophobes simply for being critical of our country's rotten foreign policy. House Democrats are showing how much they, too, still hate Muslims, Not a surprise considering they supported post-9-11 wars and expected voters to marvel at Hillary's foreign policy experience, which consisted mostly of bombing the Islamic world. The Democrats are a garbage party, so House Democrats are nominated for the garbage can. And that, of course, includes AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who refuses to defend Ilhan Omar on some liberal nonsense— she tweeted when people were asking her to defend omar today she tweeted quote remember when all the left did was finger wag and make cynical assumptions instead of showing up despite an imperfect moment
0: what is she talking about
1: when the main defense is rooted in telling others how to feel especially when you're not from that community it's not solid ground i ask other questions anti-zionist jews have been begging you to defend ilhan omar Begging AOC, Harper is begging AOC right now to defend Ilhan. She's not listening to that. She's listening to people like Pop Hasid on Twitter and other people who fucking marvel and and uh, when the Israeli military kills fucking Palestinian kids about how moral it is and how they're fighting terrorists. Fuck that! House Democrats AOC too, nominated for the garbage can. Garbage candidate number two, APAC. Sometimes it's
0: easy to lose sight of why we're even here and who patient zero is in this controversy. It's fucking APAC, the powerful DC lobby group that operates for the sole purpose of advancing the brutal interests of the far right wing Israeli apartheid government that's in the process of committing ethnic cleansing. You just heard our interview with Noah. They're trying to increase their power in Congress. They're trying to get more involved in donating directly to pro-apartheid candidates Yeah, House Democrats are bad. Yeah, AOC has been awful on this issue. But let's not lose sight of the lobbying
1: organization at the center of it all, AIPAC, nominated for the garbage can. Garbage candidate number three, Barry Weiss. So Barry Weiss has basically built her career on bad faith smears of Israel critics. She tried to get pro-Palestinian professors fired when she was at Columbia. So, of course, she said one of the most disgusting things about Ilhan Omar. Weiss equated actual neo-Nazi violence to people who criticize Israel and Zionism. Quote, the problem with anti-Semitism from the far left is that it oftentimes is smuggled into the mainstream under the guise of progressive values. It's not as easy to spot oftentimes because it says we're just about criticizing Israel. Notice how fucking inarticulate that quote is. She's just the dumbest fucking person. Anyway... Of course, because Weiss is such a duplicitous piece of shit, she went on to say that you actually can't even criticize the state of Israel, that it crosses a line when it does. So basically the anti-Semitism that Bar- Barry Weiss wants people to spot on the left that's so hard to see, you, well, you can't actually see it because it's not there. It's just criticism of Israel. Barry doesn't actually give a shit about anti-Semitism because it's actually anti-Semitic to equate Judaism with the state of Israel. But she doesn't care. She's just a venal hack who constantly spews reactionary filth from defending Zionism to defending the intellectual dark web and dime store Reddit fascist who she thinks represents the fucking the uh, pinnacle of free speech. Barry Weiss piece of shit nominated for the garbage can. All right. Uh, I'll take this next one. <laughs> Garbage candidate
0: number four left Twitter fights, which I suppose includes me. I got into it on Twitter this week. We uh, don't need to mention uh, who I got into it with. Let's just call him Schmatt Schmunig. But uh, a lot of people are <laughs> mad at me about this, uh, including maybe some of you who listen to the show. Uh, but to give Schmatt uh, the benefit of the doubt, and if any of you who are still mad at me uh my tweet may have been misunderstood and i obviously think white people especially poor white people especially uh uh Poor people in general experience police violence in high numbers. That's obvious to me. It doesn't need to be said. Even conservatives will concede that the majority of policing falls on poor people. Having said that, it's also fucking obvious that black families living in one of the most racist nations on earth, dealing with a criminal justice system that has been specifically designed with racist intent, get the worst of it and take certain precautions or have certain constant worries that, def- that, that 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 they take precautions on, that it affects their lives in ways that it doesn't affect white families' lives, and that those cut across class lines. And pointing that out shouldn't diminish any sort of white experience. And if you think it does, then you're this close to asking for a white history month, too. Anyways, I guess I made the mistake... The Irish mistake. were also slaves. Yeah. Look, I made the mistake of even talking about race on Twitter because you get... Three dozen irony leftists accusing you of being an Atlantic reading Black Lives Matter activist overnight. Not sure how the latter is an insult, but I do fucking hate the Atlantic. And in my defense, ultimately, Brunig replied to me. I'm sorry, Schmudig replied to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't start it. But for even logging on and for even daring to fucking tweet myself and anyone else who is engaged in this mess this week, we're nominated <laughs> For the garbage can.
1: (laughs) Garbage candidate number five, Joe Rogan. He won't stop giving a platform to shitty alt-right grifters. This week, Rogan allowed the most printing crypto-fascist of all, Tim Poole, to harangue Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey about banning far-right accounts. This is all part of Poole's obvious con to pretend he is a neutral observer who's just interested in free speech, just only when it involves his friends on the far-right. Anyway, none of this ridiculous spectacle would have been possible without Joe Rogan, who loves hearing from dangerous morons spouting off because he's an edgelord suit whose brain has been damaged beyond repair by DMT. Joe Rogan, you're nominated this week for the garbage can.
0: Garbage candidate number six, Kirsten Nielsen recurring character for the can, since she's the face of one of the Trump administration's most blatantly fascist policies. And as long as she keeps herself involved in this and especially defends it in public, we're going to keep nominating her for the garbage can. What's uh, the difference between the cages she's putting kids in and dog cages? Well, they're larger. Get the fuck out of here, Kirsten Nielsen. You're nominated for the garbage can this week. Okay. We've got Nielsen. We've got Rogan. We've got me and other people involved in Twitter fights. We've got Barry Weiss, we've got APAC, and we've got House Democrats, including uh, House Democratic leadership, also AOC. People are noting correctly on the chats that this would be the first time that we end up throwing a former guest <laughs> in the garbage can, although I think we did nominate Sam Chris once, <laughs> a name that shall not be mentioned. Uh, yeah, garbage, uh, this would be the first time, though. And I it would be the f-
1: first time it it, it it might not be the last time. Quite frankly, uh, you know, we, no. we've we had a lot of content to fill. And sometimes uh, we have had people who might have later on been good garbage candidates. Yeah. I think it's inevitable. It happens. I think if you look at the totality. i have had Matt of, on the show several times. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know. Schmatt, Sorry. I'm sure that. Uh, anyway, all right. Let's just count let's the votes. Not be too philosophical interns, about it. The interns,
0: the interns have counted the votes, and the garbage can goes to House, House Democrats, Democrats and AOC.
1: AOC you, you are, are going, going in the garbage can. Oh, so there goes a list of all the feelings from all the fucking shitty people who despise Palestinians who are telling you why that. Uh, Judaism and the state of Israel are intertwined and in that you get the picture I get the picture that is all there is tonight if you like
0: what you watch consider subscribing patreon.com slash district Sentinel help support this little news co-op here in Washington DC also subscribe to our SoundCloud where we release free audio content on a near daily basis hit subscribe on the YouTube channel too while you're here follow us on the old Facebook, and on Twitter at the DC Sentinel. Thanks to our sponsor, the Congressional Dish podcast hosted by Jen Briney. Find it at congressionaldish.com. Another sponsor, the Middle East Report, MERIP.org. Subscribers, we'll be back tomorrow for the 420 show. Everyone else, we'll see you next week. Until then, we're here in DC so that you don't have to be.